0: We come laying down all of our requests at your feet. We come laying down our our gifts at your feet, our blessings at your feet. We come as a grateful people for the life that we've been given, for the breath that fills our lungs, for our friends and family. We come as a people with worry and anxiety and stress. We come... There's a people, though, who, who trust you to look after us, to take care of us. So we come and we lay those things down at your feet this morning. And we pray for all of those that we know and those that we don't know who are hurting and sick and in need of encouragement and love and your healing and your light. We pray that you would open up our eyes and continue to show us ways that we might be able to be the way in which your healing and light might come. And we pray this morning, Father, that you would speak to us, that you would move in us, that as we open up the scriptures, we would be refreshed um, with a vision of who you are and your commitment to us and to creation, and that we would be sent out um, with even more hope, and the God that we worship and follow. It's in your son's name that we pray all these things. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, go ahead and flip with me to Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6 is where we'll be this morning. In the wake of Hurricane Harvey, we started a new sermon series called The Doors of the Sea. And we take this phrase from Job chapter 38, where God responds to some of Job's questions. If you'll remember, he's having a lot of struggles of his own. And God asked him, do you know who shut the doors of the sea? Um, And so we are dealing with some of the questions that people naturally have after a natural disaster like Harvey. And of course, uh, we know that Harvey is not alone in the past few weeks, in the past month. Um, You've had hurricanes elsewhere. You've had earthquakes elsewhere. um, Lots of um, seemingly natural disasters have occurred and brought lots of questions for people, particularly for people of faith. Where was God when these things happen? Um, is this some sort of punishment from God, some sort of divine judgment? Um, what is God doing? Um, what is God committed to doing? What does God expect from us um, after and during um, times and trials like this? And so yesterday, we, or last week we started the series. And we looked at the creation story primarily. And my, my main thesis last week, my main argument, was that when God creates the world, the, 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 the primary message you get from Genesis 1, the creation story, is that the world is good. God creates it, and then he steps back and gives a self-evaluation. He says, this is good. He comes to humanity, and he says, very good. And so we, we said God created a good world, but very importantly, he did not create a perfect world. He created a good world, but not a perfect world. And there's tons of indications in the text itself that this is the case. Um, After creation is, uh, in a sense, finished in the creation story in Genesis 1, God is observing what he has created. He comes to uh, Adam, and Adam, after naming the animals and being given the animals, has no companionship suited for him. And we're told, God said, it's no good. It's not good for Adam to be without a human partner, and so he creates Eve. And so even in this very good creation, God's still able to observe things that are yet not good, that need to be improved upon, um, that need to be added. Um, Humanity is given a task to subdue creation, have dominion over it, to multiply and be fruitful, to to bring God's wise rule to his creation. So we know that there's a a future for creation. Um, and, And kind of coming off of that point, if it's true that creation is created good but not perfect, Then it stands to reason that in creation, pre-sin, in a good, well-ordered creation, there is still inherently risk involved. There are no risk-free zones in creation. Um, There are things about creation that entail the possibility of suffering or pain for human beings. So we took as one example the law of gravity. We've got gravity. Gravity is essential for life. You can't have life in the world that God created without gravity. At the same time, though, gravity can be the cause of catastrophe. You can slip and scrape your knee or your elbow. You can tumble down a hill. You can be pushed over right and and fall down. Um, We like to think, if if you're kind of as arrogant as I am sometimes, that maybe if we were in charge of creation, we could have created a world with all the good stuff, but left out all the, the risk left out the, the aspects of chaos that exist in in creation. Um, but the more we understand about the world, the more we understand these things are a, a package, right? The same uh, ability cells have to mutate and, and to develop organism is the same exact mechanism that creates diseases and cancer. Um, you really can't get rid of one without getting rid of the whole kind of creative package. And so this is the world that God creates. Um, before sin, there's still some element of of, of chaos that can lead to destruction if humans get in the way. The sea is often used as a metaphor for this chaos in God's creation. We understand why that would be a pertinent metaphor after experiencing Harvey. The sea is a very scary thing. It seemingly is random, and it seemingly has unending power um, and, and an ability to kind of terrorize and destroy. Um, see as a metaphor in the Bible, um, plays throughout the entire scripture. So we look not only at creation, but also at the trajectory of creation. So creation has a, a future and a history, and in the scriptures we're given, we're given a story. And so we said, before we start answering questions like, where was God in the flooding, in, in the, the hurricane? Um, is this somehow God's judgment? How do we determine that? Um, is this somehow our fault? Uh, can our sins contribute to the suffering that come from natural disasters, things of that nature? What are we supposed to do in the aftermath? Before we answer those questions directly, we want to get a kind of foundation. And the foundation includes the entire story. So we, we already know the end of the story as Christians. We, we have the scriptures. And we know that at the end of the story, we're told in Revelation, there is no more sea. As a metaphor again for chaos. So the world that God creates Though it still contains chaos that God is shutting in. He's he's shut the doors of of the sea. He's controlling it. We heard it in our scripture reading. One day that will be no longer in creation. In God's new world, we might have what we would call a perfect world. A world without any possibility of risk for harm and suffering and things of that nature. We saw in the, the middle of the story, you have Jesus fighting in that direction. So Jesus calms the sea. And this is a sign about God's work and activity in the world. He's on a mission. He's on a project to get rid of the sin and evil and chaos and destruction that we find in creation currently. Now, to follow up on that this week, I thought it would be a kind of obvious place to look in our scriptures to turn to the great flood story. And so we experienced the flooding of Harvey. This morning we'll talk about the kind of great flood that you find, again, at the very beginning of our scriptures, another foundational story in the scriptures, another story that gives us the lenses by which we can view the later stories in the Bible and by which we might be shaped to understand our experiences and, and our uh, mission today in the world um, and so after you have the creation of the world, um, you've got um, Adam and Eve sinning. Then you have their children. One kills the other one. You remember this story? From there, violence just kind of keeps cycling out of control. His great-grandson, um, Lamech, um, brags about how he kills all kinds of people, 70 times 70 people. When Jesus says forgive, 70 times 70, he's probably referring to Lamech's boast about how many people he kills muck seems to be this out-of-control, like serial killer. He, he boasts in it, right? Like you look at him wrong, and you're dead. Um, the wind blows the wrong way at him, and, and then you're dead. Um, and violence keeps kind of tumbling. And so that's your first story, in a, a sense of three stories that we get. Um, then you get the flood story, and then you get the Tower of Babel story. These all take place in Genesis 1 through 11. And the purpose of Genesis 1 through 11 is to set the stage for God's rescue mission. In Genesis chapter 12, God calls Abraham, who will form Israel, God's people, which will produce Jesus and produce the church. But the the backdrop to God's calling of Abraham and to God's rescue mission is a world created good that tumbles out of control and is seriously distorted and devolved. And in the process, we get the story of the flood. Now, the flood is a surprisingly popular story. Um, I say that in two senses. Um, First, uh, you know, it still today has a lot of currency. The flood is one of the most well-known stories of the Bible. It's one of the favorite stories that children's ministries around the world use to interact with their children, which can kind of seem paradoxical at times, right? I mean, you can understand the cute animals. Uh, You put it on the walls in the nursery. Um, You can put the animals in and outside the little felt board of the ark. Um, but rarely do you show the other part of the flood. Right? The children are animals that didn't make it onto the ark. It seems like perhaps if you were looking for stories that were the most terrifying examples of God interacting with the world, you might have found it with the flood. And that's what we say to our kids and say, have sweet dreams. Don't forget that one time God destroyed everybody. But it's okay. Um, it's also popular in another sense, which is that the flood story is a universal story of all cultures and all religions. So scholars over time have found variations of the flood story in over 200 different um, uh, different existences, 200 different extent uh, stories that you have across all different cultures, across all different religions, the ancient Near Eastern world, All, everybody, every culture, every people group seemingly had this traditional background understanding of their world of a flood story. Um, And there are remarkable similarities between all these flood stories. For the most part, out of all these flood stories, um, you have, uh, of course, um, a God sending a flood. You have animals getting onto a shelter. You have a Noah figure, the, the human who will be saved, getting onto this shelter as well. Um, You have a covenant or promise this won't happen again after you get out of um, this flood. And it's remarkable for lots of reasons. You have, again, over 200. Some of these flood stories, we think historically, we can't imagine how these people would come into contact with one another over time and geography. Um, So you get this many stories, right? And you start to wonder if people are copying each other, right? Like, I've heard that story from that culture, and we're going to appropriate it. And use our God's name and change some of the details for our God. We have so many of them actually that that you kind of wonder if maybe there's not some basis to this. Maybe there's not maybe the reason everyone has their own version of a flood story is because in the deep recesses of humanity's memory, is this experience of a flood that shaped our view of God and shaped our view of God's relationship with the world going forward. And we can learn a lot between the differences between the flood story and um, that we find in the Bible and other cultures' flood stories. So I've actually been invited to give a lecture on the differences between these ancient New Eastern stories and history classes a few times. It's very fascinating to me. Um, I'll give you one example. You can learn a lot not only by studying the story but also by seeing how different it is from other cultures' stories. It tells you what a different view of God it is, what a different view of humanity you get. Um, So in the two biggest well-known flood stories are probably the Gilgamesh epic and the Atrahasis epic, which we'll just call story A, okay? Um, And in story A, you get a much different picture than you get in the Bible. Um, So in story A, the god or gods create humans to be their slaves, to be their servants. They're tired of building things, of gathering their own food. And so they create and sense this little ant colony of humans to do all their work and bidding for them. Now, anyone who has small kids or has ever worked with a group of kids, um, if you've ever been in a lunchroom with like middle schoolers and the volume level just goes like exponentially through the roof and you're like, this is way louder than the sum of all these parts, knows that children are very noisy and they can sometimes interrupt your sleep. And when your sleep gets interrupted, you get cranky you might make decisions you otherwise wouldn't make. Don't look at your spouse right now. (laughs) And so in in the A story, the reason God sends the flood is because these slaves that he's created are so noisy that he can't get any sleep. He's annoyed. He's sleepless. He's cranky. And he sends a flood to just get some peace and quiet for a little bit in the world. Of course, it's not the picture we get in the scriptures, right? The biblical story, humans are created with dignity in God's image. They're created to serve with and for God, to spread his wise rule over creation. And we'll see when God decides to send the flood, it's not because of an annoyance. It's because of some moral failure. It's because humanity is not acting towards one another and towards creation the way that they're supposed to be acting. And so with that, we'll, we'll pick it up in Genesis 6. I want to really show you two focal points of the flood story that I think can shape how we can view later interactions with God in the scriptures when it comes to natural disasters and how we might uh, experience and filter our own um, thoughts and uh, times um, through the, the, the lessons from the story. So Genesis 6, we'll pick it up in verse 5. Uh, it's, a, it's a large portion of Genesis 1 through 11. The story it goes from 6 through 9. We'll just read a few verses. Genesis chapter six, verse five. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Notice the emphatic nature of those words, right? The Lord's looking out the same way he looked out over the world when he created and said it was good. Now he looks out and he sees wickedness, human wickedness. And he sees that every intention of their thoughts and their hearts was only evil continually all the time. And the Lord, verse 6, now this is a verse that blows up your theology, okay? Verse 6, the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. Just let that sink in for a second. That's a very powerful, powerful statement. Whatever your assumptions are about God and God's being, God's nature, here's what the text tells us here. God regrets making human beings. He goes, I'm kind of upset that I even did this in the first place. And these people are so bad. These people have ruined what was a good creation. They've gotten creation completely off of track toward the destiny that I wanted to take it towards. Now, if you're reading out of one of our Bibles here in the church, what I'm reading out of, it's the English Standard Version. That's the the English translation. Um, And the ESV here has actually softened the text so that you don't get too kind of riled up by what the Hebrew says here. Um, In the Hebrew, the actual word that's used here for what happens in God's mind when he sees this wickedness is that he repents, or he changes his mind. God looks out, and he changes his mind, and instead of wanting humans, he now no longer wants humans. And this is difficult for a lot of us to process, because it's hard for us to think of God regretting a decision. He knows everything. He knows what's going to happen in the future. It's difficult to think of God changing. We've been taught, I think correctly, that God is an unchanging God. This is the doctrine of immutability, that God uh, doesn't change. But actually, in the Old Testament, there's a very prominent theme of God repenting or changing his mind. Um, in fact, it's so common in the Old Testament narratives that eventually it gets placed onto one of Israel's greatest creeds. God is compassionate and slow to anger and repenting of his wrath. He changes his mind when he wants to bring destruction and judgment. You can think of uh, Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. If you remember the story, God wants to um, kill all the Israelites. They made a golden calf, which why would you do that? Um, They just walked through a sea, okay? It had been split, and they get a little bored, and they build this little golden calf. Again, why a calf? Not a tiger or some lion. And they literally say these words, This golden calf brought us through the Red Sea. This golden calf delivered us from the Egyptians. And you're reading this like, how stupid can anybody be? And Moses is on the top of the mountain. He's unaware that they're doing this. And God tells Moses, hey, back off for a few minutes. on need my face. And he comes back to Moses and says, I'm about to kill every last one of those people down there. They've made this golden calf. They're attributing it to it now, false worship. And if you remember, what does Moses do? He argues. Moses does not take that as a plan. He doesn't say, Well, okay. Moses goes, No, 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 no. Here are a few reasons why that would be a bad idea. And if you remember, God does what? He repents. He changes his mind. He does something differently. He destroys less of them. But you see the trajectory there, right? He's repenting of anger and wrath. Later on in Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham will argue with God. He'll bargain with him. If you can find this many people, if you can find this many people, if you can find this many people. And God repents. God changes his mind. When God comes to Noah as we'll see in a moment, and says a flood is coming because of all the evil that is in creation. Um, one author I was reading this week wondered what would have happened if Noah would have argued. Would the story have gone differently if Noah would have had the prophetic instincts of a Moses or an Abraham? They say, well, wait a minute. We're going to kill the entire world, the entire creation, everything that has has breath? What The truth about God's unchanging nature, um, his immutability, is that um, it's not his decisions that don't change. Uh, It's not God's actions in time and history. To be in time is to subject yourself to change. It's kind of how we define change. Um, Over the course of time, something was this, and now it's this. Um, When you're young, your skin looked good. Now that you're old, it's got a lot of wrinkles, right? Something has changed. I'm not looking at anybody in particular. I'm just saying is something that happens. When Christians say God does not change, what we're talking about specifically throughout history has been God's nature and his being. God's nature, his character never changes. God's being never changes. So we could say it like this. God will never stop being a triune God. He's always been Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he'll always be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That will never change. You can always count on that. You can take that to the bank. And God's nature will never change. His nature of love and creativity, his commitment to saving that which he has created, never changes. One author, as he reviews the repentance text of God in the Old Testament, says, the one thing God can count on is to change his mind to be more graceful, to be more merciful. It's an unchanging, it's a, it's a consistent changing, if you will, right? God's mind will be consistently changed to be more lenient to his people, to back off of his original judgment, his original plan of destruction. But again, just 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 try to capture how explosive this language is. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth. And then the second part of the sentence is just as explosive. It grieved him to his heart. It grieved him to his heart. Now this is extremely bold language about God. Um, So in the context of our canon of the scriptures, narratively, uh, in terms of the story, this is the very first time we get a glimpse into God's mind, into God's inner being, into God's heart, into the relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. The closest we've been so far is when we saw God's self-evaluation, when he said creation was good. You have to kind of assume that he was pleased with creation, kind of proud of himself. Now, though, we get a direct window into the axis of God's heart. And I think you and I would expect, because of all this wickedness, the emotion that's in God to be one of anger. That's what I would be if I had created something so good and it had gone so wrong. But instead, what emotion do we get here? Grief. Grief. Sadness. A lot of theologies are built up around God being angry at the world, being angry at sinners, um, being one inch away from unleashing destruction upon sinners because of his un- unending kind of anger towards all those who have dishonored him. It kind of reached its pinnacle in a sermon preached by Jonathan Edwards called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He described all of us like spiders hanging over fire. And at any second, because of God's anger, the web could be cut and we could burn. You might, though, from this text, have a different picture of God's attitude towards sinners. You might say, this seems to make it look like sinners are in the hands of a sad God, of a grieving God. And there's a big difference between anger and sadness, Sadness is a subset of love. And anytime we think about God being angry or wrathful, and we'll talk about this in in future weeks, we've got to think of it through the lens of love. God primarily is love. He exists as love. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Holy Spirit. He is, in essence, love. And so when someone disobeys God, when something goes bad in his creation, he reacts through love. And what happens when someone that you love disappoints you or hurts you? You might use the word anger, but probably a more appropriate, truthful word is grief, sadness. You're disappointed that they chose that for themselves. You're disappointed that they've done that to you. And this is the picture of God's heart that we get here. So the Lord said in verse 7, I will blot out man." Whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. For I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now I know you're thinking of Noah. You got Russell Crowe in your mind, okay? From the the movie that was made a couple of years ago. Um, when that movie came out, there's a lot of criticism about the you know artistic liberties you have to take when you take a story like this and turn it into a Hollywood production. Um, One of the things that kind of confused me was what were people expecting with the Noah story. If you've read the story, um, you'll see Noah is a two-dimensional character. Um, We know almost nothing about Noah. Noah never talks in the story. We know very little about the inner working of Noah and his family, those type of things. We just have a couple statements about Noah, facts that we go on. And so, of course, if you're going to make an hour and a half long movie, you're going to have to kind of read into things. You're going to have to come up with some dialogue on your own here. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. and we're told these were the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. He walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the sons are important. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. It's violence that is the primary characteristic of a world that is wicked, of humanity that's gone astray. Now I suggest suggested it's not that different than it is today. I can very much imagine God looking out upon our world and just seeing violence. Violent nations, violent allies, violent people, violent acts being committed all the time. And he looks out and he's sad. (coughs) And God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt. Instead of behold, it was good. Behold, it was corrupt for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. This is human and animal. For the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So God here says, I'll, I'll use a, agent, a mediating agent to destroy them. I won't directly destroy them. I'll use the earth itself to destroy them. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. And then he gives lots of instructions for how the ark Uh, should be made and what should go on and shouldn't go on the ark here. Um, Now, the first big emphasis I want you to catch here in the story is humanity is evil and God is upset. God is sad. It grieves his heart that humanity has gone the way that it has gone. When anger is our primary way of understanding God's attitude towards sinners, towards the world, I think it creates a lot of unhealthy things. I think it distorts our theology in lots of ways. I think it, it can have the possibility of making us afraid of God. I know when I was a kid and, and I was presented with these angry, angry pictures of God, I wasn't a big fan, right? I wanted to run away. I wanted to hide. Jesus, to me, as a little kid, was presented as kind of the getaway from the angry God, the Father is incredibly angry at you, but the Son can kind of get you out of this situation. And so I, I was a big fan of Jesus, but I was still a little scared of the Father. I mean, he, he, he had me in the targets. It can also serve the purpose of excusing our own anger and violence toward other people. So if, if God is an angry God who wants to destroy, out of some objective sense, um, all of his enemies— then you and I find it so much easier to experience him as the God who wants to destroy our enemies. Instead of the command we've been given from Jesus to love our enemies, to do good to our enemies, instead of the multiple places in Scripture where God is a God who loves the just and the unjust, who shows gratuitous favor and mercy and grace on all people, who desires all to be saved, And surely you can think of multiple ways in which our world has way too many instances of ideologies and people who think that their God is the enemy of their enemies. And that they don't include their own sin, but instead they can focus on and demonize and separate the other and say, the God that we worship wants you destroyed. He has no compassion for you. He's not sad when he sees you. He's just angry. But I think at a very early point Scripture, in fact, the first point, first chance we get, the Scriptures want us to think of God, conceptualize God as sad when he looks at sin. Sad because he loves his creation. Sad because he desires better for his creation. This is reaction to the wickedness that you find here. Now, if you'll flip with me to Genesis chapter 8, or really we'll go to chapter 9, we'll go to the end of the story. And I want us to read the end and see what has changed and see what has not changed. And this is where I think we find the real kind of meaning from the flood story. So the flood's come and it's gone. Noah and his family are out. In Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He repeats the commands he gave to Adam and Eve. They're restarting humanity here. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground, all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Notice this is a different relationship than the original relationship in creation between humanity and the rest of creation. That one was one of stewardship. We were to take care of them. Now it's one of fear. Creation's experienced what we're able to inflict upon them through our violence and through our sin. He says this, Every moving thing that lives, verse 3, shall be food for you. This again is different than in creation where human beings theoretically are are vegetarians. They're not slaughtering animals to to be eaten. Um, But verse 4, he says, As I gave you green plants, now I give you everything. Verse 4, But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your life, blood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it and from man. From his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Here God gets a little more serious about violence. He says, don't think this is something you can play around with. You take the life of something God has created, particularly in his own image. This is a serious, serious thing that you've done. And you, he says, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him. Watch this very closely. Verse 9. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. This is very interesting here. God here makes a promise to never do what he just did. God here, in a sense, after the experience of the flood, says, I'm going to adopt a new strategy. I'm going to have to adopt a new posture into the world. And he self-limits himself he says, I'm taking off of the table the ability for me to bring floods and destroy all of creation. Now, surely there will be judgment brought against certain people in, in other times and other places, but never to this extent and by this means. God here makes this promise, and he gives a sign for this promise, a bow in the sky. You probably know what that bow is. It's the rainbow. What we call the rainbow. It's a promise that God gives to humanity for this, this promise of peace. Now what's interesting is we think of the rainbow primarily as it's really pretty, right? It's pretty and it gives us a reminder that God's not going to flood the earth again and kill everybody except for one family. Um, in the original context, in this is ancient Near Eastern, um, people interpreted the bow in the sky differently. So some people thought this bow in the sky was a necklace. It was just this like, pretty thing God sacrificed to show us that he is for us and, and will be peaceful towards us. That's how I think kind of we now naturally interpret it. It's a cool little effect that the light has. It reminds us about the story that we, we read as little kids and try not to think about too hard. In this context, in the biblical context, though, the bow is not a necklace. It's a weapon. It's an actual bow. If you think about why, it's called a rainbow It's what shoots the rain, as opposed to, say, an arrow bow. And it's hung up into the sky. What happens here in Genesis is God disarms himself in front of all of creation. He takes his weapon of mass destruction, the bow of rain, and he gives it up. He hangs it on the wall and says, Every time a cloud comes, not only will you see that I'm not holding the weapon, but I'll see it too and i 'll be reminded of my promise. note the bow is not just for creation it 's also for God it 's in the clouds for God to see, for him to remember, for him to be faithful i 'm told by people who are uh, do archery that you don 't hang bows up by the string. you hang them by the the curved wooden portion. in fact that 's what you've got in the story and, and in reality, right? It curves upwards it 's hanging there god 's disarmed himself. And, and if you really think about it, now where's the bow pointed? Up, at God himself. And this seems to be the posture God has now committed to take in creation. So if you keep reading, we, we, just for time's sake, I won't read through the story. Um, you'll read that very shortly after Noah got off of the ark, he starts to drink. I'm not saying any of you did that after the flooding receded, You might understand, okay? You're a little stressed out, a little anxious. So he makes himself a little winery. He starts to drink. And and Noah, very quickly, right? I mean, this again is kind of like the golden calf thing. He just survived a storm that killed every living thing in creation. And we don't give a timetable here, but this is the next story we get. Now he's drinking, getting drunk, and he blacks out. He drinks so much, his mind turns off, his body goes all "I the tiger and keeps going. He falls asleep in his tent with no clothes on, as one does. If you're laughing, that tells me a lot about you. Then we're told that one of his sons comes in and does something shameful. There's, it's kind of an ambiguous story. It could just be, Very um, matter-of-factly, he just sees his father naked, which would be a shameful thing in that culture. There do seem to be implications that perhaps something else happened. Whatever the case is, it's something for both of them to be shamed of and something for one of his sons an entire nation to be cursed for. Some evil happened as Noah was, was passed out without clothes and his son came in. And then as the story continues, the next Big story out of the three, you got Cain and Abel, the flood, then the Tower of Babel. You'll note evil continues. And soon, not long, humans are trying to take God's place again in the Tower of Babel. He has to bring judgment and spread them out and confuse them. So notice what has changed and what hasn't changed after the flood. This is where the this is where the money the, the money point comes in. This is where you really get a lesson of the flood. What hasn't changed are human beings. They were evil before the flood, and they're evil after the flood. There's no repentance. There's no change in human beings to cause God to now be kind instead of bring judgment and destruction. Sin walked onto that ark in the form of Noah and his family. And sin walked off of that ark with them, even though everything else was destroyed. What's the one thing that's changed? God and God's relationship to His creation. The flood story is not a story about Noah. Again, he, he, he's really a two-dimensional character. It's really not a story about creation and the rest. I mean, you don't get a whole lot of details about the suffering and the destruction and all this. It's not, the story's not interested in that. Where you really get lots of details, the focus lands is on God. The story about God. And God has now changed. He makes this promise never to do this again. But he's never going to do this again, yet the same circumstances exist on the earth. The same ones that made him bring destruction still exist, but now he promises peace. He promises a different relationship. The same circumstances that brought him sadness and suffering and grief still exist. But instead of trying to eradicate it through destruction, God commits himself to a different sort of relationship with creation. A peaceful relationship with creation. Which, in in matter of fact, kind of commits God to a life of suffering. God here resigns himself, in a sense, to being sad about his creation and there's turmoil, and there's suffering, and this seems to be the route, the path that God has ahead of him in the future. Now, as Christians, we can very easily, I think, see where the flood story, where the rainbow promise leads. It leads to a God who, instead of destroying creation because of its sin, forgives creation. It leads to a God who, instead of returning upon humanity the evil and suffering they have given, takes it upon himself. The rainbow is pointed at God, and on the cross, it's fired. And God gives his very own life for this creation that has made him sad. This is, I think, the real lesson of the flood story. It's not the flood itself, ironically. The point of the flood story is not, God did this, he can do this, we should be scared, this is the thing that happened. The point of the flood story is that this is not the case anymore. God has chosen to relate differently to creation. We now understand more fully what kind of a God we have. And the promise of faithfulness and rescue and salvation that will never depart from us. Again, we heard it in our scripture reading. Where he said, like the days of old with Noah, when I promised never again to bring destruction upon the earth of the floodwaters. And so, as you and I continue to, to struggle with these questions, as we continue to explore God's relationship to the world, I think this is another foundational story that should shape our instincts when it comes to reading stories in the scripture, that should shape our instincts when it comes to our own experiences when the floodwaters are encroaching upon our houses. Our communities should shape our own responses when we think about what type of people we might be. The type of people that suffer for others, like our God has suffered for us. The type of people that is committed to the good of others, like God has been committed to our good. As we come to the table this morning, I encourage you to come, letting the flood shape how you think about the cross this morning. This is God behold him on a on a tree suffering for you pouring out his very own life this is his response his ultimate cosmic eternal response to your sin to my sin to our wickedness to the chaos of creation it's not to return in favor it's to take it upon himself and to set us free, to give us forgiveness and salvation, to accompany, accompany us on our way to his new world that he will create. Where one day the, the doors of the sea will be completely shut up. Where there will, will be no more flooding. There will be no more chaos and destruction. There will be no more pain and suffering like we're told in Revelation. So I invite you this morning to to reflect on these things, to pray on these things, and to come and receive Jesus' work on your behalf in light of these very early stories that we get about who God is and what he is committed to doing in our world. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. We thank you for the time that we have this morning. Um, as As usual, Father, we we are a people with more questions than answers. We are a people with more questions. Um, thoughts, than solutions. Um, but we, we want to hold fast to the truths that you have shown us in Scripture. Help us to reframe our mindset of your relationship to creation as one of, of sadness. It's one of love that's committed to restoring, and redeeming, and saving, and rescuing. Help us to model that posture in others. Help us to appreciate what you've done, what you could have done to creation, what you could do to us but have chosen not to out of your loving, steadfast nature. Help us to receive the cross, to worship the work done on the cross through your Son with even more beauty and glory and appreciation. Knowing that instead of aiming the bow towards us. You've aimed it at your own self and have offered your life for ours. We pray all these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.